Father, I pray this morning that you would help us, as I often pray, not only to understand the words that we have been given by you, but that they will change us. That we will walk away different people. That we will be more obedient and more loving and holier and sounder closer to you and one another, closer to the image of Jesus Christ so thoroughly revealed in this book. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If I have my phone out, which uh, my iPhone tells me exactly to the hour and minute how often that is every day, um, I am a huge sucker for not only scrolling through Facebook and uh, Instagram and that kind of stuff, but I love Apple News because on Apple News, I get this opportunity about 10 times a day. Uh, BuzzFeed or somebody will throw at me their top 10 list. Uh, here are the top 10 rivalries in sports. Here are the top 10 uh, romantic comedies of all time. Here are the top 10 most powerful superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whatever it is, uh, I get these lists and I'm just a sucker for every one. And it's because I am actively engaged in proving why the author is wrong and why I know the real list, right? And uh, so uh, repeatedly I get sucked into this and I, this is what I'm thinking about. And if I'm not at work sitting at my desk reading my Bible, I may be shuffling greatest albums from the 90s or you know, who, who were uh, the greatest movies in the 1970s. This is the kind of stuff that's running through my head. And it has absolutely no lingering consequence whatsoever, right? My opinion about why Ohio State, Michigan is better than Carolina Duke does not seriously matter for one iota in any part of the universe. But Hebrews, Hebrews is all about ranking. This is the top ten list of all the things that are, of all the things that exist, of all the powers and principalities in the universe. Who ranks number one? And the argument that we've seen already from the first passage in Hebrews and the argument that we're going to see again today and throughout the book of Hebrews is repeatedly, no matter who you put him up against, Jesus is number one. And how we rank Jesus, how we understand the specifics, the creedal, doctrinal, theological intricacies of the arguments being made about who he is are of massive consequence. If you cannot answer these questions right, you live in perilous danger. Rank Jesus the wrong way, and you end up with an entirely different religion. We ask a person who's an adherent of Hinduism, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And they say, oh, of course, he's divine, a great God. But when you explore a little deeper, you know that they have nearly 400 million gods, and Jesus is not distinct among any of them. The Jehovah's Witnesses love Jesus. Jesus is revered. But they also believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael who has manifested himself in various ways throughout history. Jesus isn't being ranked rightly. In Mormonism, you have God the Father, who was at some point in history past a man, and 
he and the divine wife bear a son, and that son is Jesus, and Jesus attains some sort of divinity, just like you and I can. We can all be gods, just like Jesus. You rank Jesus wrong, and you run the risk of deviating massively from the historic faith known as Christianity. Get the definition for Jesus right, and what you arrive at is this. There is one God of one substance, one being in three persons, all eternal, all equally powerful, all equally invested, our triune God, and the work of salvation that we might be redeemed to them. We have to be careful in how we approach this. And, of course, the author of Hebrews is exceptionally careful to build this argument. And that's what we find here in Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to start back in verse 4. The big idea that you'll glean from this week is that there is nothing and no one higher than Jesus, not even angels. Now, we might take that for granted. I think most of us, when you think about angels, and, again, talking about top five, top ten lists, uh, it's a Wonderful Life is absolutely one of my favorite movies. Has been for a long time, uh, and I love Clarence. Clarence is uh, a, an incredible historic character in American film, uh, but he's also sort of this bumbling, ignorant, timid, uh, sometimes confused, small, pudgy uh, man, right? Uh, he is not the terrifying, seraphim-burning ones before the throne of God that people in ancient times may have thought of when they thought of angels. We think of angels, and you might think of Clarence, or you might think of a little cherubic Cupid shooting arrows on boxes of candy around Valentine's Day, right? There is nothing and no one that compares to Jesus. And so as we get a fuller picture of who angels are in the book of Hebrews, we get an, an exceptionally even better and higher picture of who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to find here in Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say... You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. Or of the angels, as he say, he will make his angels winds and his ministers of flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of his uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And here's the concluding thought here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There's actually a relatively clever argument that's being made here by our friend Barnabas here in the opening verses of Hebrews. 
We go back to verse 3. He is the radiance, talking about Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He has been called now the Son of God in power, appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. This is the way that the author starts here, elevating Jesus beyond all things. And he's making it very, very clear that the one who we are enamored here with above all of the angels has the authority and power over them because he made all of the angels. The author of Hebrews uses chapter 1, verse 4, to make his thesis regarding Jesus. And Jesus has made purification for sins at Calvary. And now he's recognized, and he's recognized for his position and his power. His position and his power. He is the Son of God with power. He sits at the right hand of the Father. No angel gets to do that. Angels are created. Now, if you spend a little time in Psalms, and you'll remember, and we talked about this last week, if you want to really understand what's going on in the book of Hebrews, you should probably read the book of Hebrews. But if you're going to find that backup text, then that book is the book of Psalms. He quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book, which is kind of surprising. We think of Psalms as kind of light and devotional. The author of Hebrews thinks of Psalms as intensely theological. In fact, here in just a minute, we're going to get to how he makes this argument that Jesus is above the angels. And you know what book he's going to go to over and over again? Anybody? Psalms! He goes to Psalms repeatedly to make that argument. If you go to Psalms, what you find is that of all the things that have been created, the psalmist believes that there is none higher than angels. Angels are the greatest thing that God has ever made in a sense, described there by the psalmist. After the great war in heaven, in which a third of them decided to follow Satan, the rest of them were locked into holiness. They are perfect servants, always following after the will of God. They are glorious. They are pure. They are not tainted by the world. They are his servants who always do what he tells them to do. They're not muddied like we are. Their wills don't fluctuate like ours. They are in the argument that the psalmist makes higher than humans. And yet, right alongside humanity, angels were engineered to act as God's servants. That's why they were made. And so this is one of the big arguments that's made here in the early part of the book of Hebrews. Angels were made to serve. Now, uh, this would have been a difficult idea in the first century for them to wrestle with, that these incredibly high beings were servants. That, that would have been difficult for some people in the ancient Near Eastern world to wrestle with. They were so high, so glorious, so bright, so beautiful, so overwhelming in their power, it's hard to remember that, that they were made to serve God, that God is above them, that he is of a different magnitude of gloriousness and power than they are. After Hurricane Matthew, and I think that was... 2016. Do you remember that? Uh, Laura and I threw the kids in the car and we drove to Pine Tops. And we're really just trying to figure out, not just as a family, but as a church, what can we do to get involved and serve our community? Can we get food together or clothes or whatever? 
we're driving down the road, and I think it's Pine Tops Baptist Church. We pull into the parking lot, and there is a convoy of tractor trailers that have already pulled up from Samaritan Spurs. Uh, you may like or dislike uh, Franklin Graham's politics, uh, but nobody, nobody that we have interacted with in the time that we've lived here in North Carolina does a better job of meeting the spiritual and physical needs of disaster survivors than Samaritan's Purse. It's hard for us to find anybody. Uh, of course, they have people who are buzzing around and working, and uh, finally, in the back of one of these trailers, and it's massive, it's, it's uh, got two floors in the back of this tractor trailer, we find this uh, little guy, and he is covered in dirt, and his jeans have about 40 holes in it, which, of course, is really fashionable now. Uh, maybe not when he bought them. Um, he looks uh, just shy of homeless, and he has all of these chainsaws set out on the workbench, and he's got one of those little round files, and he's filing, he's sharpening the chains on all of these chainsaws. And uh, we went in and introduced ourselves and, you know, said, hey, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor of Rocky Mount Bible Church. We're just trying to find somebody we can talk to about being more involved, and he comes, he's just the nicest guy imaginable. But my understanding of who he is, his identity, is that, like, Bubba here is the chainsaw chain sharpening guy, right? And that's as high as he is ascended up the ladder. And so I said, well, is there anybody I could talk to about more details? And he goes, well, yeah, why don't I go ahead and send you up to the church there? There's some people inside you can talk to. And so uh, we get inside, and just as ignorant as I can possibly be, I'm like, you know, hey, we talked to Billy Ray in the truck, and he sent us up here, and the, the two ladies that were there uh, praying in the church and working on some other things, just kind of look at each other and smile. And they said, oh, you met, I think his name was Danny. You met Danny. I'm like, yeah, you know, Danny's out there. He's working hard. Don't, don't give him too hard of a time. He, those chainsaws are getting really sharp right now. And they said, oh, well, you don't really understand. Danny uh, is the vice president of Samaritan's Purse. The only person he answers to in the organization is Franklin Graham. Uh, he was appointed by the board. He's worked here for 30-some years. In fact, the person that hired him was Billy Graham. Uh, we just didn't have any truck drivers, and, and decades ago, uh, he drove trucks for us before he ascended to the top, right? And so the only reason he's here is because he saw that there was a job that needed to get done, and he just stepped in and did it. But don't be alarmed. All of us work for him. He's the boss. It would be really easy to explore the life of Jesus and see all that he does to serve. And to forget that all of these things which have been created by him exist to serve him. It was easy to look at Danny and to see how he is down here in the dirt and he's serving, he's covered in grease and mud, and to forget that he's the vice president, that all of these people work for him. What the author of Hebrews wants you to understand is, here are all of these glorious angels doing all of these incredible things, and in juxtaposition you have Jesus and a lot of people, even there in the first century, still had a picture of who Jesus was. He looked like you and me. He had dirt on his feet. Sometimes he got sunburned. He, he looked because he was very, very human. And so Barney makes the argument, don't forget, all of this, he made all of it. And it all exists. Even the highest things, the glorious things, the bright and shining things. All of them were made to serve him. They work for the boss, and that's Christ. 
So that's how the argument starts out here in the first few verses of Hebrews. And then what he does is he goes to seven different passages in the Old Testament to start to prove the argument. I've provided them all there for you. Of course, I have all of these commentaries in my office. I love books. One of my favorite mugs is, yes, I really do need all of these books. Uh, and, and I use them, and all of that data I can find there. What I've done is I've distilled them down for you. Now, look, uh, I already have it. If I've included it in the notes for you, it's because I really think it's important that you not only pay attention now, but you go home and tuck those away somewhere and have ready access to the arguments here at hand. He starts with seven arguments. Seven arguments from the Old Testament, seven passages. If you look in your Bible like I can look in mine, you'll see that an awful lot of what follows in verse 5 through the end of the chapter is kind of offset in poetic form. That's a clue to you that he's quoting from the Old Testament. And so the first passage that he quotes from is Psalm chapter 2. I'm not surprised that he's quoting Psalms. You shouldn't be surprised either. It's his favorite book. I will tell of the decree, verse 7 in Psalm 2, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here's the very first passage he goes to, you are my son, I have begotten you. This is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that was written by David that not only talks about his rulership and authority as a big covenant has been made with him one of his descendants will reign on the throne of Israel forever in fact one is coming the messianic king who will rule forever and ever and ever but if you go back to Acts chapter 13 and we don't have time for that this morning but I highly recommend it you'll see that when Paul reads Psalm chapter 2 he and the author of Hebrews understand the exact same thing which is at the resurrection something about Jesus having completed the work of Calvary and now being raised again to new life Jesus has inaugurated his rule on the throne of David no angel can make that argument only the Messiah can only the one that was promised to come through David's line can claim to be the ruler on David's throne and Barnabas understands that that is, of course, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is begotten. None of the angels were ever begotten from God. Of course, that doesn't have anything to do with birth. Begotten, we think of maybe as something that happened. The Holy Spirit impregnates Mary, and now Jesus is begotten. It's not birthing language. It's status language. He is the Son. The total inheritance of the universe is his because of his atoning work at the cross. No angel can ever claim that. Secondly, Jesus is David's royal heir. Maybe you were a little confused about what it means for Jesus to be this one promised from David's line. And so he goes back to the exact covenant that was made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This comes from verse 14. He says, I will <clears throat> be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Who is he speaking of there? This is the Lord not only speaking of uh, David and David's sons like Solomon who would rule on David's throne. It's a messianic prophecy. There is a son that will come from the line of David who will rule on David's throne. Not for a generation, not for 40 years, but for a thousand years. This is a promise that's made about David. Again, the Davidic covenant here being fulfilled proves it's about Jesus. The third passage that he quotes here is 
uh, either from Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 97. We don't know exactly which one. My guess is uh, that it's Deuteronomy 32. But we also know how much you love Psalms, so take that for what that's worth. He says in Psalm 97, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Instead, worship him, all you gods. Or from Psalm, excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries, right? The whole idea is that there is a pantheon of gods. There are many, 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 many gods out there, false gods, idols that are being worshipped, and that Jesus is higher than all of them, not least of which because he's the only one that's real. Of all of the invisible things that your imagination can conjure, angels or powers or principalities or any of these created things, none of them compares to Jesus. Jesus alone is worthy of worship. And this is exactly what we talked about at the very beginning. How you answer the question, who do you say that I am? You remember when Jesus poses that to Peter? Yes, yeah, so we've heard lots of stories that you're Moses or you're this prophet, or you, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How you answer that question is the most important thing about you. There is no decision you will ever make to have children, who you marry, what job you take, where you live. How you answer the question who do you believe that Jesus is, is the foundational question of your existence. And if we don't get that question right, that Jesus alone exclusively is worthy of worship, then nothing else really matters. Take, for example, Islam. The Quran adores Jesus. He's highly exalted. He's considered a prophet uh, eclipsed only by Muhammad himself. But he's not divine. He's not worthy of worship. He does not rank at the very top of all that is in the religion of Islam. It's important that we get the theology right and put Jesus at the very top of the list. Because the argument that the author here is making isn't that Jesus is very good or that Jesus is a great guy, or a very wise teacher, or an incredible sage now handed down through the ages, his teaching and his wisdom. The argument is that Jesus is God, the creator of all things, worthy not only of admiration, but worthy exclusively of worship. That's a very important argument that's being made. Fourthly, Jesus serves and is worthy to be served. Lots of Creatures serve, but not all of them are worthy to be served. This comes from Psalm 104. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind, and he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. No angel is being made worthy to be served. Angels were made in their very fabric to serve. Fifthly, Jesus is the God King and acts and speaks with that kind of authority. This language again, anybody would take a guess where this is from? Psalms. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is 
forever and ever the scepter of your kingdom is this scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Uh, Psalm 45, we find not only coronation language, but also marriage language. And it's being applied here to Jesus, who is the spouse of this bride, the church. That's how the New Testament understands this. No angel can make that claim. Sixth, Jesus is the creator and is not created. Not only do we find a lot of passages in the New Testament that say Jesus made all things, like we read earlier in Colossians chapter 1, he made all things and all things exist both by him and for him. Can't say that of angels. But the author here quotes Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, and you'll change them, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Jesus creates, the author says. He is not created. Angels were created and can themselves create nothing. No angel compares to Jesus. The final argument comes from Psalm 110. Jesus is the divine conqueror, uniquely qualified as David's heir to sit at God's right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is coronation language. Here, in a couple of years, and I don't know, maybe she'll outlive me, but Queen Elizabeth II is going to die, and her son Charles is going to become King of England. And the region of the Church of Scotland will give her a Bible, and the Archbishop of Canterbury will hand her the scepter, and she will work through the coronation, or excuse me, he will work through the coronation of what it means to become king and sovereign over the Church of England and over the United Kingdom and this is the same thing that's happening here in Psalm 110. This is a coronation of a king. But the author of Psalms and the author of Hebrews says, we're not talking about an earthly king. We're not talking about David or Solomon or Saul or Rehoboam or Jeroboam or any of the miscellany of kings that follow in Israel or Judah. We're talking about Jesus and his coronation as king. No angel will ever rule as king. That's reserved for Christ and Christ alone. Now, we've just read an awful lot of psalms, and you may be psalmed out, but let's make two observations about this whole argument. First, why does the author of Hebrews work so hard so that you understand exactly who Jesus is, not only in relationship to humanity, but also in relationship to angels? Uh, I saw a story on the news the other day. A guy robs a bank. His name is Michael Harrell. And I'll tell you why that's known definitively here in just a second. Um, he goes to the bank. He hands the teller a note. The teller uh, responds, hands Michael a bunch of money. Michael walks out and gets away. And the police show up to his house a few hours later. Uh, they arrest him. He's taken to jail. And uh, the conversation with his uh, attorney and the prosecutor has to go something like this. Uh, all right, uh, Mr. Harrell's uh, defense attorney, we have some evidence against your client. Oh, yeah, what do you got? Well, we have his fingerprints all over the counter uh, there uh, at the bank, number one. Um, 
We found all the money he stole in his house. He had possession of it, number two. Um, He actually walked up with no mask on, and his face is on camera because several times he looked directly at the camera and just, like, sucker smiled right into the thing. All right, well, what else you got? Well, when he came into the bank this morning, he had a a, a note written there, um, and uh, apparently he had been, uh, this is Ohio, we don't have the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. He's at the BMV, and um, he had to uh, update the registration for his car. And so on the back of the note was his name, his address, his car make and model, its license plate, its VIN number, um, and he left it on the counter at the bank. And when he demanded that the teller give him some money, the teller said, Michael, is that enough? And he goes, I prefer you call me Mr. (laughs) Harrell. (laughs) Okay, Mr. Harrell, is that enough? And he took the bag and walked out. That should be enough argument that this poor guy robbed the bank. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews has done for us. Uh, One verse may not be enough. Let me give you another piece of data, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another. Anyone who has read the Old Testament or the New has to be reckoned with the fact that Jesus is above not only these lowly people here on earth, but even these glorious and beautiful and bright angels. There is nothing that has been created that compares to him because he is the creator. He is the savior. And because of those two things, only he can rule on David's throne. All of the great messianic prophecies now being met in Jesus Christ. It's a very thorough argument. It's a slam dunk case. Mr. Harrell's going to spend some time in jail. It's a slam dunk case from the Old Testament. Jesus is who he claims to be, and that is the Messiah, the King, the Savior, and he alone is worthy of worship. Second observation. Do you know how well Whoever wrote Hebrews, right? Maybe that's Barnabas or Luke or Priscilla or whoever it is. Do you know how well they needed to know their Bible to make this argument? There's no Bible software. There's no internet. There are no great concordances. There are no commentaries. This is it. They have scrolls handed down. Many of them, I'm sure, never owned one personally. They would have to visit the synagogue or the temple in order to see these words written down. The intense familiarity that they had with the word of God allowed them to confront a generation that was tempted to walk away in heresy and to put down the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be saying to yourself, that's great. I'm glad that we had somebody like Barnabas. And I know that in the history of the church, we have needed people. We have needed people like Polycarp or Irenaeus or Athanasius or more recently somebody like a Francis Schaeffer or William Lane Craig or whoever it is. We've needed these warriors of apologetics in order to defend the faith and know the word and make the bold claims from the Bible about who Jesus is. But you know what? At your job on Monday... William Lane Craig isn't going to be there. When you have your like block party barbecue when the heat finally breaks and you're able to get outside again, Ravi Zacharias is not coming to your block party. Athanasius is dead and has been for a while. The person that God has sent to minister to that group of people is you. 
That's you. Do you know the word of God well enough to do what God has called you to do? Not what he's called Ravi Zacharias to do. Ravi's doing that. What he's called you to do. You cannot impart what you do not possess. An army can't march on an empty stomach. If you want to do what God has called you to do, you need to be in this book. Do you understand? It's not only so that we understand the right things. It's so that we can fulfill the mission that God has given us to worship him and plead with others to do the same. You got to know the book. Two things. What do we learn about God from a passage like this one? First, angels are often used by God as mediators. They're his messengers. They go communicate whatever it is that he sends them to say or to do. And it's interesting, if you look at the New Testament's, all of its sayings about angels, one of the things that you find not only in Galatians, but also in Acts, and as the early apostles are preaching about the work of angels, specifically as it relates to the Old Covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses that we studied all throughout in Deuteronomy, right? You'll remember that covenant. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. The New Testament authors argue that the mediators of that covenant are angels. And so you start to see a hierarchy that develops in the argument of the New Testament. Down here you have lowly, dirty humans, disobedient, literally and figuratively, covered in dirt, marred by their own sin. And these unholy people are not allowed to talk to a holy God. And so from among these people, we find uh, a single tribe, the, the tribe of Levi, and we develop a class of priests. And they're going to speak for the people. And when God speaks down, he's going to speak to the Levites, and they're going to dissemble that information to all the people. So now you have the people down here in the layer right above them. You have this priestly class. They are the human mediators. But that's still not going to work because they're terribly flawed people. Even these ritually clean, biblically familiar priests and so the imagery that emerges from the New Testament is that between God and even the priests, there has to be another layer, and that layer is angels. So do, do you remember as kids, you'd play telephone in class? You, you'd sit in a circle around the class, and somebody would whisper something, right? A silly message, uh, Jason smells funny. And um, it, they would whisper into the next kid's ear, Jason smells funny. By the fourth kid, it's Jason likes honey, Right? Um, and, and then, like, it, by the very end, it's, you know, uh, Tonka trucks are great transformers, but the president, you know, like, it just is not even close at all to the, because we have so many mediators mediating the message. None of them were great. The angels did exactly what God told them to do, but they couldn't mediate in the way that Christ can. And so this is the argument that's being made already here in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus has done this work of making purification for sins. You'll remember in the temple, you weren't allowed to get close to the Holy of Holies, that inner room. This is the place that was reserved in holiness for the presence of God. There was a thick veil that kept you away from him because he will not endure your unholiness. This is for your safety. 
but because Jesus has made purification for sins, at his death, that veil is torn in two. And so there's a symbolic and a spiritual message being relayed there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath of God left to fear. There is no enmity from the Holy One on high. For those that follow him, you can have access to God himself. And that's the exact argument that's being made here in Hebrews. There's no need for angels to mediate this covenant. There's no need for priests to represent the people. You are a kingdom of priests, a nation, all of you priests, all of you given direct access to God by God himself. The old covenant, I sent angels to bring that message down to you. The new covenant, God takes on flesh and walks it down on his own two legs. There is no one now between you and God. No one and nothing. You have access to him. Christ is so good at making purification for sins, there is no longer any need for any mediator other than him. You don't need a priest to whom you will make your confession of sins. You don't need me to represent you to God. God has come to you. If you want to know what he's like, you're not dependent on me to mediate this book to you. You can read it for yourself. If you want to speak to him, you don't need to call the church office and ask, oh, could you please on your next make some imprecation or some prayer or praise on my... You can boldly approach the throne of grace. Christ has come to you. That's an extraordinary thing. You have access to him because he has come down to you. Secondly, Angels were recognized as the highest of all of God's creations. In Psalm chapter 8 and 2 Peter chapter 2, we understand that they are immovably holy, those who stayed after the war in heaven, irrevocably obedient, um, to the point where even in the ancient church, we saw this in Colossians chapter 2, uh, 15, 18, somewhere in there, we're told that the, there was a segment of those in the city of Colossae who actually worshipped angels. And so Paul has to confront them and say, oh no, they're wonderful, glorious, incredible, holy creatures, but they are not made for worship. You might uh, find them fascinating. You might exalt them. You might uh, be absolutely blown away by their majesty. You might, when confronted with one, fall down as though dead in light of their holy visage. But just like you and me, they were still made. And they were made like us to serve. And they were made to do the work of worship and not to be worshipped. Christ alone is worthy of worship. So even if in the ancient world you couldn't envisage anything better, anything higher, prettier, more beautiful, more glorious than angels, the author of Hebrews reminds the people that this Christ in his robes, in his cloaks, in his sandals, in his occasionally disheveled hair, who had to have 
his feet washed so that he could sit at the table with the other humans and pick up this human food with human hands and put it in his human mouth. That image shouldn't stop you from reckoning with the fact that while he was fully man, he was also fully God and no angel ever was. And this is maybe the most important message that emerges from Hebrews chapter 1. You can affirm that Jesus alone is worthy of worship and still not actually worship him. The Jehovah's Witnesses can come to your door and spout some heretical message and you might with total authority and ease use the word of God and eliminate every heretical point that they have. But that doesn't equate to worship. You might be so familiar with God's word you may have known all of those passages from Psalms by memory that you could construe for yourself a dense theological tome affirming that Christ alone is worthy of worship and still not actually be worshiping him. You might be able to stand before all history of the church and recite every creed word for word and still not worship reckoning with Christ's exclusive worthiness for worship is not the same as worship if you cannot get it from your head through your heart and out of your hands now is the time not only for reflection but for repentance how do I know that I'm worshiping? Well, I know very easily when I'm not. When I come to church, and, and if I give everybody a blue book exam and ask them to lay out, theologically, is Jesus Christ higher than the angels? Everybody in the room will go, yeah, duh, of course. But if I come on Sunday morning and I am curmudgeonly and I cannot sing, I will not render to Christ the worship that is due to him with the sound of my song. And I mumble through the words as I think about what I have coming up in the afternoon and what I want for lunch and what I have to get done at work tomorrow. If I come into the room, right, and, and, and I've forgotten my, my Bible and it's in the back of the car and it's fallen over, it's been there forever and oh, but it doesn't matter anyway because I'm half asleep and I'm not engaged and I haven't read the passage and I'm not tracking along and, 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 I, and I interact with my fellow made in the image of God, brothers and sisters here at the church and this person is getting on my nerves and I'm steeped in self-righteousness and where is the worship? He has earned when you come into this place every ounce of you that you can give him. And you can say all of the right things and you can know all of the right things and you can affirm all of the creeds and you can memorize the Psalms and it's not the same as worship. In fact, we're told that there is another class of angels those who fell away and followed Lucifer and that they know with greater specificity than any of us know exactly who Jesus Christ is, but none of them worship him. 
And so this is my encouragement for you this morning. You're going to walk away from this passage, and not only have you seen seven distinct passages in a somewhat dense theological argument for who Jesus is. You've seen that. But the point of recognizing who Jesus is isn't so that you can regurgitate an academic argument. It's so that you will worship him because no one compares to him. He is above your job. He is above your aspirations. He is above your school. He is above your friends. He is above your family. He is above every person you have ever loved. He is above every pastor or priest. He is above every prophet or angel. He is above your longest held agenda. He is above all things. He alone is worthy of worship. Father, I pray that as we march deeper and deeper into Hebrews, that we would reckon with this Christ who must not only be exalted, who must not only be revered, but must be in our hearts and minds always at the top of the mountain that we will worship him and him alone. In whose name I pray, amen.